Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In five, four, three, two, one. Transport complete. Come inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. How can I connect at source with divinity as me recognizing that I am divinity? Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. Anytime you bring awareness to your central meridian, you are the center of the universe. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. You get to know that the desire inside your heart is inevitable. I can't wait to explore this enchanting space with you. That's the point of a numerology blueprint is to study and go, what's going to fulfill you in this lifetime? And we all have it. Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. Hi there, and welcome to Inside the Wooniverse, the podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe in Maine. I'm your host, Colette Baron-Reed, and joining us today is the most marvelous human I know, best-selling author, mystic, poet, teacher, channel, and creative. I just love this woman. This is Rebecca Campbell. Now, she has been featured in Vogue, The Sunday Times, and Oprah.com, and she's the author of some beautiful books like Light is the New Black, Letters to a Starseed and Oracle decks like Work Your Light and the Rose Oracle, to name a few. Now, her content has been translated into over 20 languages, and she's supported hundreds of thousands of people around the world to change their lives and answer the calls of their soul. Welcome to the Wooniverse, Rebecca. Yay! Great to be here, Colette. <laughs> yeah. And everyone else. <laughs> yes, yes, all of us here in the Wooniverse. So listen, I want to go way back, like when you were a little Rebecca. What was your childhood like? And were you always interested in mystical people, places, and things? Could you always sense energy? I think so. Yeah. I I remember like saying to my mum when I was really little, like, there's something I came here to do and I'm going to show you what it is one day. So I, al- I always had that. <laughs> but I think also I was very sensitive as a child. And my grandma taught me to pray. Like she was quite religious, but spiritual religious. And so I always was in conversation with the sacred God. I mean, I didn't really know of the goddess then, but if I did, I'd probably be her. (laughs) Right. Um, But I definitely had that. I think back then it was more like a a yearning, almost like an Mm. ache for something that I couldn't quite words around. Um, Obviously now I'm like, it's sacred, it's the soul. But yeah, so it was a connection, but it was also an aching for a connection. Does that make sense? That is such a beautiful way of describing this because I had the same experience. It's an ache, this aching Mm -hmm. yearning. I mean, I had felt it too and I'd seen it. I mean, my experience was different, but that said the ache was the same. And no one's ever said that um, Mm -hmm. in any of the interviews. And I I really identify with that, that aching yearning for the sacred and and without knowing what to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, we knew it was there, but where? You know, the where, especially because of how we are conditioned to see the world. So interesting. I actually used to see you on Skype. So <laughs> you, so funny. So tell me, I'm going to fast forward to when you were the Skype girl and then, uh, and then how you got into, because, you know, you are one of the most phenomenally 
gifted spiritual teachers now, but I remember you way back. So let's <laughs> kind of, how did you go from there to here? <laughs> so I think I always knew that I wanted to create, like put creations out there. And um, I went to university, I did communication. I'd been studying in the mystical arts, like on the side, I'd been doing all that stuff on the side, but never saw it as a career. I just was like, it's right. what I just love and can't get enough of. And so I always had a vision of putting creations in the world. And so I ended up going into media, like uh, advertising, and I worked as a creative copywriter. Um, so my job was to come up with ideas for different brands. And I moved to London um, really for my career, but also I think it's the ancestral connection as well of the sacred sites and all of that. But when I was in London, I would do these um you know, I had my journals, my affirmation journals. And I, honestly, I found them th this one recently, it was like, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of, I have a job that only I can do. And I right. inspire people around the world and I travel around the world and get paid for it. So I was very specific with what I wanted to manifest. Yeah. And I was working as a freelancer, um, a creative in London. And there was an agency I worked for and they were like, we've got this idea for the Skype Nomad. It was a brand I was the working Skype. on. I knew that. Yeah. yeah. I knew the tone of voice and all of that. I did some freelance work and they, they liked my writing. And they said, so this is like a whole new idea. It was before the iPhone. There was definitely no right. Google Maps or anything like that. And they said, the idea is that we've got this Skype phone and you can have 3G on a phone. And it was like just so <laughs> far out then. And so the idea is that you can Skype anywhere around the world yeah. on the move. And yeah, the concept is the Skype nomad who travels around the world nonstop for 33 days on Skype. So as in you're testing the mobility and the, the access yeah. you can get to. Yeah. So now it's like just everyone has a mobile phone with Google Maps and all of that. But back then it was very, very cutting edge technology. And so, yeah, I got given <laughs> this role and I literally had to... Um, I was a blogger, essentially. I had never right. had a blog myself. I'd, I'd been a writer, but I hadn't had a blog. And so I had a blog called The Skype Nomad, and I traveled around the world for 33 days in perpetual motion, like without stopping, Yeah, which meant I had to eat, sleep, and do everything on the move. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> that is so amazing. And you know what's so weird is that I knew I would know you, but I didn't know how. And Aww. I'd be like, I, I know this person. Like I'd be looking Aww. at you, I mean, you're much younger than I am. Like, I just know her. I know this person. And I'd be like, why do I know her? <laughs> wow. Gosh. But there you were. Well, I was well, fascinated. I probably felt the same thing because I remember in Australia, I don't know if you went to Australia for the I Can Do It's, but um, I was obviously like many of us, like Louise Hayes work was so influential yes. for me. And when I was really young, I would go to the the spiritual shop and like read the books and put my hands in the crystals yep, and all too. of that. And I'd save up and go to these spiritual workshops. And, um, I remember just like looking up at all, all these amazing teachers and being like, oh my gosh, I wonder if I could do that one day. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and then through my 20s, same thing. I remember just seeing these incredible teachers, but seeing it as like this big gap between me and um, 
and them. So I know that feeling. And there was <laughs> never a gap. You were just, the, the, we were just waiting to catch up with each other. It was, uh, <laughs> but I had the same experience, interestingly enough, too, only obviously different time frames. But looking at Marianne Williamson's book when it first mm. came out, A Return to Love, she was also a singer and I was a singer. And I was reading this book going, I wonder, oh, this feels like me. And yet I was like, how would I ever? Because I was always in the spiritual bookshops too and studying about divination and all the other you know, I was literally, they let me go in the bookstore. I had no money to buy any of the books, but I would yeah. be in this bookstore constantly. And then when here comes Colette <laughs> and I could go with my little lunch, right. And sit there and, and literally read. And they, they were so nice to me, but yes, mm. I would, do, I felt the same thing. Like, wow, what a, could I ever do that one day? And here we are right here. We are. It's amazing. So besides Louise Hay being a great influence on you, and, and I wanted you to tell that story, by the way, about being the, um, the Skype nomad, because <laughs> I also, and I knew you were going to talk about the journal, because I have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of journals, some of which I had to get rid of because there's too many, but I still have the very first one of affirmations that I did. And everything in it is, has been manifested. So, you know, when you said, I travel all over the world and get paid for it. That that was like I was I was so excited that you actually so told that story because you have literally if you go back in your journals created every single thing called in. 100%. It's it's amazing and it's not amazing because we know it works but yeah, yeah when you actually go back and see, because I think when you really, really, really yearning for it, I think when you then begin living it, it feels a little yeah. bit more like a dance. Yes. But when you begin like that, everything feels so, because I think- At a distance. Mo- yeah. And I think most of us, not all of us, but most of us are raised in kind of like a, a society or a life that is like what you should be living versus yeah the conditioned reality exactly exactly yeah. and so I think that for a lot of us that first leap into kind of the dance with whether you call it the sacred the universe or whatever it is it, it does seem far away and maybe it's an age thing as well I have a theory that mm. I haven't talked about with too many people but do you also think that when we do affirmations the ones we're attracted to are because our soul wants us to say those things because mm. when I look back at the affirmations they were never really coming from a place of lack they were inspired mm. so I wonder when we open up to this we start feeling the inspiration to claim it as the affirmation and then it happens because it's already built into us. I think yeah, that know, makes which, sense. Yeah. Right? Cause I think for me, I do work with affirmations, but not like I did before. Me neither. And yeah. so the <laughs> affirmations felt like the bridge to living yes. the soul's voice every day. Yes. Maybe? Yeah. It, yes. Maybe that's it's like it. the, it's like the fire starter. Right. right. Like, yeah, so it's right? the higher self telling you what your soul's telling you. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's, I mean, I've been fascinated with this because I, I worked it. I worked those affirmations. Right. So now, did you study with anyone in particular or did you just find your own path? Like, did you, you know, who were some of your teachers or what were some of the books that you loved? So a bit of all of the above. Um, right. I would say my first real book besides You Can Heal Your, Heal Your Life was Many Lives, Many Masters by uh-huh. Brian Weiss. Weiss? Weiss? I always Weiss, forget yeah, which Brian one Weiss. is. Lovely. I <laughs> know him well <laughs> now. Very grateful. Um, but 
that was a really influential book for me. Um, uh-huh. It kind of like hurtled into, you know, the past life conversation, Akashic Records, all of that kind of stuff. Another really strong book for me was, you know, strangely enough, it's a little bit morbid, but I'd always been fascinated by death and grief and like just what happens when we die, where we go. And so my first book that I read, actually, it's even before all the spiritual books was on death and dying and the stages of grief. Yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. And um, when I look back at like the experience that really hurtled me into the spiritual world, it was through connecting with a couple of young teenagers who had passed over and then being Mm -hmm. kind of connected with their mothers. So there was something about um, the threshold of death that really initiated something in me. And interestingly, when my mum, I had my son about almost three years ago now, and when my mum came to to visit around that time, she mentioned, oh yeah, do you remember, not do you remember, she's like, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when you were born, I actually shared a room with a woman who had just lost her child. Wow. And so like my first two weeks of life was that threshold. And hearing that, oh my gosh, it, it erupted something in me because I'd always felt this deep grief within me and this yearning to kind of like find a mother, even though I had a mother. So oh, I get it. I think that really was the first in- initiatory thing for me that really, you know, woke because I was at the threshold of birth and death at the same time and joy and grief and uh-huh. all of that, um, which I think is like a core part of my work I'm, I'm discovering. And then, yeah, as the years went on, one of my um, teachers, like who helped me, I guess, get the courage to to create workshops and um, and work professionally was Sonia Choquette. I um, ah. I went to her workshops in London in my mid twenties. I didn't know that. That's so cool. So she mentored me for a bit. Yeah. But nowadays, when I look back, the biggest teacher is definitely nature. Um, it's how I yeah. do all my creative work and writing. Um, even when I was working as a creative in advertising, I'd go to the beach before work. I'd do like an hour of idea generation and then I'd go and sit in a cubicle and pretend to work. <laughs> so yeah, I think nature is the number one. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we don't live in a city. And actually when we first moved to Sedona, Arizona, the mystical quality of nature, and we, we had to go somewhere that was so different from where we were in Canada. It spoke to me. It always did, even when I I was a little kid specifically, and my dad was also an animist, so he Mm. raised me in that concept. Um, But there is a sense that I had too that everything was in nature, and I always felt a yearning for it, like that ache, the ache that I didn't know how to communicate with it, because Mm. it's true in the West, and certainly in our in our society, a global society, I mean, we've been taught that we live on the planet, not we don't belong to nature, that nature somehow is our ours to do with what we wish. And that's totally wrong. So that's part of our great deep suffering, I think, and our disconnection. I do want to talk more about the connection that you have with nature because your, the, your body of work is 
about the soul. And as an animist, I believe that in the anima mundi, the soul of the world, so that you can't, you know, a soul-led life must include nature. It has to. It just doesn't work if it doesn't. So um, can we talk a little bit, because the common thread is your deep desire to connect people with the wisdom of their soul. So in your opinion, when we hear the whispers of our soul, how can we move beyond our fears, fears of the unknown? And nature is frightening to some people, right? Because they don't know it. They don't know they belong to it. Um, How do we move beyond our fears that we have, especially in the face of uncertainty? Well, I think the first principle is, like you've just said, to realize that we're not separate from nature, rather we are nature. And I think to realize that, the society that we've all, if you look at it from a soul perspective, chosen to incarnate in. Well, it's a big time of change, but for a long time, there's been such a focus on the spring and the summer. So, you know, you can see that is in in like the young women being, and, you know, slender bodies and all that kind of stuff being idolized. But then also just, you know, like we've had conversations before about like producing rather than creating, you know, and not honoring the autumn and the winter and those times where actually we need to take a breath and take a a back step so Mm -hmm. that the new seeds can kind of come in. And I think that the more that we connect with nature, the less afraid we get of those darker parts of us and the darker parts of life, which is like, I know for both of us, at the time of recording this, we're heading into, well, we're in fall and those leaves are beginning into fall. And then we're going to go into the cloak of winter. And, you know, and it feels like when we go through these phases ourselves, it can feel like, oh my gosh, nothing's going to grow again ever. And, and, you know, we just want to be in spring and summer, but if we don't give ourselves those times and, obviously this is a symbolic way of saying like, you know, when relationships, we know they're about to end, but we're just so afraid of loosening our grip Mm -hmm. and letting go might be a career, a job, whatever it is. It's, it is terrifying because we don't know what we're being called towards, but if we look towards nature and, you know, something like a a flower, like the rose is teaching us this, all of nature is teaching us this, this, Mm -hmm. but if you look at the rose, there's the bud stage and then there's the beautiful bloom. But if you actually have roses that grow in your garden, you very soon learn that they're not around for that long. And we, we, in our mind are like, oh, the rose is all about the flower. It's actually not all about the bloom. Mm -hmm. And if it has the courage to let the winds of, of the season change blow and let them surrender them to the earth, then the rose hit will come the fruit, which is a whole nother phase. Right. And then the, and that's medicinal. Exactly. Exactly. And, and some roses have a second bloom as well, and they're going to the next spring anyway, but if they clung to those petals and tried to stay in the bloom the whole time, they just like, it's, it's just not natural, you know, and the next phase wouldn't come. And I think oh, we know as humans that changes the one certainty. I mentioned death before. That is the certainty. Yes. But we're so afraid of it. We're so afraid of these things that are actually certain and natural. And so we try and cling to keeping things as they are. But I think when yeah. we're trying to cling to keeping things as they are, what happens is like that's when things stagnate. That's when we yep. we're resisting this we're relying on our own strength versus um, 
that intelligent pulse that tells the flowers when to bloom, that tells a baby how to be born, that governs the seasons and the tides, like everything in the cosmos as the ordered universe. Has a cosmic blueprint. Literally. Every single thing does. Literally in every single one of us, like the acorn has the oak tree in it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so when we're trying to keep things the same and resist that change, and it is scary change, but when we're resisting it, we're trying to go against all of that, that whole blueprint. So I think that that's what I remind myself all the time, which doesn't mean it's easy. I'm so excited that you said this because again, I've never heard anybody talk about it like this, but I've been considering. Um, so you said that we all want to stay in spring and summer. I've always been one. I've my birthday's in the summer, but I love the fall and winter. Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to give birth to ideas if I let go and see. And I love the yearning that comes in the poetic quality of watching the season, you know, shift with the decay and the changes and then the requirement for rest and sleep and then knowing that spring will come. But um, I think part of what you just described that society wants to stay in the spring and summer, and that's so true. It, with the way we've seen beauty standards and ageism, et cetera, et cetera, that even there's a pathology to wellness in some way, mm. which is always about striving to keep yourself young, keep yourself a bud, you know, mm. keep that bloom. When we have to acknowledge, like maybe those things that we're trying to erase, like we're trying to somehow erase the fall and the winter as cycles, when we should really not look at those things pathologically. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing wrong with these things. It's like grief. It's like, oh, can you get over that? Or when is this going to end? We we need the cycles of all of it. That's the full catastrophe of life. All of it, the rose hip and the rose, the thorn and the bud. Totally. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I've been reflecting a lot lately on like healing and what it actually means to heal. And I think, again, it's like, particularly in the wellness kind of world, it's like, it is the healed is the bloom, but actually yeah. like it is in the decay that the new kind of comes again. And I, I even look at myself with my own body healing journey, which is right. Me too. Big. Um, and those difficult times that I've been through physically actually, when I've like properly allowed it rather than pushed on through it. And, you know, it's so hard not to be like, oh, I'm broken. Like I'm, there's something wrong with me because right. I'm not in this state. But like yes. if you look to nature, like it's nature isn't in that whole, well, well we see whole as the full bloom rose. If you Right. We mistake it. My analogy yeah. versus wholeness is like, is, is wholeness actually like life in motion? Yeah, that's, uh, anyway, I'm not quite there yet with it, but I've been contemplating a lot on it, yeah. No, I get it. That's why I brought it up because I was sort of hearing you and I'm going, I wonder if it's, if you also have considered this because I've been thinking about this all the time lately. Like what is the nature of healing? What is the nature? Like why is that seen as something to avoid? I think anyway, again, I could be wrong. And I think right now everything is one big fat experiment <laughs> of thought anyway, but right. I've just been wondering, I'm saying like, well, 
why don't we honor these two, honor rest as much as we honor productivity? Why don't we honor these cycles? And why do we think our fear needs to go too? Like that's the other thing. I think I can make space now and I've been sort of really practicing. You know, I, I create a life greater than my fears, but that doesn't mean my fears have gone away. It means that I can call on more courage because mm. I still am one of many people who have born here who have been conditioned to see the world as certain way, whereas another part of me that's wiser and more connected knows that that's not the true world. It's so you know? true. So it's, no, I don't quite know how to language it yet either. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, there's there's definitely something rich in here. And it's, it's reminding me of, um, so I have my son who's almost three now. And for about a year, he's been going through this interest it's it's a classic toddler thing where they like test boundaries and basically yeah. they're, they're not the nicest they're cute but <laughs> anyway but how it's been showing up for him and I is he he was kind of like push pull like pushing me away a little bit and just like really what I noticed really expressing his feelings and I was like getting hurt because he was like Aww. being really mean to me but then Aww. I started and but then I was like okay what is and I couldn't quite work out what it, what the teaching because what I've discovered being um a mum is that there's a thing called reparenting and they basically trigger <laughs> stuff from your childhood you think you dealt with it and then it's like oh no <laughs> anyway and so I, I was like oh that's interesting his favorite book is called All About Feelings. And every single night he reads it, he goes to sleep hugging it. And what I realized was he was just like, he was expressing feelings to me when he's like, no, I want to hold daddy's hand or whatever. And I'm like, oh. Um, <laughs> but the moment I then realized, oh, why are his feelings bad? I'm seeing his feelings as bad just because I'm like, you should be like this to your mother, right? <laughs> Which I would like it. I'd prefer it. But as soon as I just worked out that, then what I did every time that he like did it, express played out his feelings in a way that I felt wasn't okay. I then made it okay for him to have these feelings. And I realized, oh my gosh, that's what I wanted when I was a kid. Oh, and boy. then it changed everything. <laughs> and he stopped playing out. And so I, I guess I'm saying that in that wow. sense of like this perception that we have of like being broken or being, you know, I, I'm not healed yet or certain behaviors not being right or, and I think with parenting, yeah. it's like a big thing. When we shift our, our framing on it, it's like something completely new opens up. Yeah. I, and I, I know you and I are in alignment on this because one of the first things I tell people when people enter my school is, first off, you are not broken. You're coming in here. You're just not broken. There's no brokenness here. And we come here in wholeness to discover what we might have lost or temporarily misplaced or, you know, we need more love. And uh, we make sure we step into this that, okay, now we just need to wake up to what's already there. And mm -hmm. very much... Uh, reflective of what you just said about your son, making it all okay, you know, making all of it when it does hurt because we have expectations or we mm. want it to be a certain way and stuff. And, and even making that okay too. Like, 
wow, ooh, I feel that moment of loss or pain. And and like, okay. Because if we don't have all those feelings, I feel like I'm the little kid with the book now. Like, yeah, I want all my feelings. <laughs> I, I, I want that book. <laughs> I want that book. I want them all. I want all my feelings. Because really, we have to undo a lot right now. And having the patience to uh, not to be shamed into the undoing, but to be in a state of discovery of of what needs to be redone, undone. Do you know what I mean? Oh, and, 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 and what re- a time re- this is for that. Right? Oh, my gosh. And sticking with it. So I want to talk about something that you like to kick off in your workshops with. You talk about something, my favorite thing you talk about, which is stepping into soul time or Kairos time. Can we talk about that? Let's talk about what is it exactly and how important is it? So, so Kairos is um, it's from the ancient Greeks. There's two different types of time, Kronos time and Kairos time. Kairos time is the space where the sacred resides. It's where time feels to kind of like stretch a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, it's where creative ideas come in fully formed. Um, I find when I'm in Kairos time, um, my voice actually lowers. It's almost like Mm -hmm. I drop more into my body. I slow down a little bit more. Um, you can be in Kairos time when you're with a lover or a friend, or it doesn't have to be like a spiritual practice. Whereas Kronos time, um, is like linear time. So it's kind of like, right, got to get this done. You know, you need Kronos time to get the bus on time, get the flight on time and all of that kind of stuff. So one's not better than the other. Um, but because my work is all about, um, like having an experience of your soul and weaving the sacred back into the everyday. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm really doing in all my work is inviting people to step into Kairos time, which is not to necessarily live there all the time, but when we step in, it's to allow it the sacred is like properly there. Exactly. And to know that it's there. Cause I don't think any, well, certainly we are, we are not taught about that because right. we're really conditioned to believe that Kronos time is the best. Exactly. That, oh no, Kairos time doesn't really count. That's, I, there's actually a book out. I'm not going to say what it is, but I ran across a book that was all about how intuition and the sacred has very little value. <laughs> What? This is this big, yes, seriously, it's a big book. I'm not going to name it. But anyway, and I was reading it going, oh my gosh, it's very, very data-based, very, very Kronos, Kronos, Kronos time. And I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. The, the kind of hangman's kick, if you will, of that very narrow you know, contracted perspective on how we mm. have to be, which is all about production. Produce, 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 because there's no room. Kairos time doesn't exist in the production Right. Line, right. Whereas we need Kairos time to have ideas. Exactly. To, right. Yeah. I would say to that, whoever that person is, has <laughs> clearly written it in Kronos time. But, um, it's clearly I, bothered me, this book. <laughs> yeah. But I, I believe that Kronos time, so another way of looking at it out of time is just the intuitive mind and then the rational mind and mind, body, soul, right? So the soul is connected to the intuition, the spirit is connected to intuition. And then we've got the mind and the body. And so what I teach is about living a soul-led life. So putting some time aside, at least at first in a structured way, to step into that Kairos time so you can hear your intuition, but it doesn't mean that you're spending your whole day there. Oh my gosh, I'm, I put my mind and my body to work. I'm disciplined. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I am a Kronos time person, but Me too. I prioritize <laughs> 
Kairos time. So like I was saying that example of when I was working as a creative and then a creative director, I would go to the beach on my own for an hour at 6am in Kairos time. And then I'd go to work and do the Kronos. But to be honest, like the work that I did in Kronos was a hundred times better when I began my day in Kairos. Yeah. I, when I started painting a while back, that's when I, I had a discipline to step into Kairos time um, and know it as that same language. So, so I was, I've always loved that you taught that because I, it gave me the discipline to let go and allow. And then I was able to be really grounded and disciplined in the Kronos. So I think what you teach is a way for us to become more balanced we don't have to go look for this. This is already built into us. We just have to remember it. Okay, we have to take a little break now. More with Rebecca Campbell when we return. Okay, we are back. Rebecca, let's pick back up on what we were talking about. Um, speaking of remembering, so this is this is a fun thing. So, because we are at a different age, so I, when you were born, <laughs> there was <laughs> I was beginning my career. But anyway, so there is a book called The Starseed Transmissions by mm. Ken Carey, and I was obsessed with really? it. Really, and I felt like I had come home. Somebody understood me. Like this was, this was for me the most extraordinary concept. And I was so excited. Here we are years later and you create the beautiful Starseed Oracle and you started teaching about Starseed. So I would love your take on this and, and because you've evolved, like everybody evolves these ideas, right? Because it disappeared for a while and it, it was so pivotal for me uh, back in the 1991. <laughs> Right. And I was doing readings at the time. No, I was born in 91. I was born in 81. <laughs> okay. Well, you were 10. Okay. So how about that? You were still in grade school. <laughs> yeah. As in like year three or something. <laughs> All right. Whatever. But anyway, that was like, oh my God. And then you, when you brought it back, it was like, I never forget. I had goosebumps even in my hair. Right. I was just like, my whole, my whole body went so tell me how you channeled that and, and how it came to you and then what the different types are because you you really evolved the concept since then. So let's let's chat about star seeds. Well, it, the star seed thing came in for me around 2011, 2012, like as in properly came in. And for me, I started learning and studying how to do Akashic Records readings, like in quite a structured way. And one of the trainings I did talked about planets of origin. And, uh -huh. and so basically from that perspective, it's essentially like, you know, you say you have past lives, but what if the soul has experienced elsewhere? And when I look at things, I'm like, right. The cosmos that we know is so freaking huge. So right. like, where do we go when we die? So I was very fascinated by that concept, but more than that, there was something in me. Like I had this yearning again within me where I was like, I always felt like, is this home? Where's home? I'd always been traveling around kind of like trying to feel it. And I think that's an ancestral thing as well. Yeah. But so I'd always had that. And then when I started learning about this concept of potentially our souls have experienced elsewhere, it made so much sense because these, these visions that I'd always had since I was young, and it's why I wanted to get into oracles really, because I just wanted to get 
the visuals that were in my head out of my head. <laughs> um, right. And yeah. And so that's where it really began. And I sort of started to do Akashic Records readings and I started noticing, and I did not expect this. I had a lot of what I would call then star seeds come to me, mm-hmm. people who had that same longing for home and memories of elsewhere. Da, 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 da. So they kind of directed me a little bit as well, like what would come through in the sessions. And then um, I did my other books and then the Starseed deck came in. I actually had pitched Starseed years before and Hay House were like, that's a bit weird. And I'm like, I know it is. No, it really? Is. Like, it's not very no. on trend or whatever. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, everyone oh is into that it was, now. <laughs> that was so, the number one, but it was huge. 1991. It was so huge. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause, and I, I think just the timing maybe, but yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. but interestingly, we were ready and, again. Exactly. Ready again. Yes. And so, and I think I was ready like I, cause at first for me, the starseed concept was very, I was like, this is where your soul's from. So like most times when we go through an awakening, we're very certain of things. And then as time goes on, you're like, I'm into the mystery, like more questions. Right. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm grateful for that timing actually. And the, the starseed Oracle, my intention was that with that one was really to create imagery and activations that help people remember who, or souls remember who have that other experience but also to plant ourselves here more fully. So it was yeah. always don't get lost up there because it's easy uh-huh. to to kind of like bypass and just be like, oh, I was from Pallades and that's about, I, I just want to be there now, you know? Yeah. So I knew I wanted, it needed to be about anchoring that energy here. And then um, Hay House asked me to write a book, which I ended up writing Letters to a Starseed. But interestingly, I was writing what I was writing at the time was about returning to the earth. So again, it was about planting yourself here. It was so beautiful. That's my favorite one of yours. Oh, I loved it. Thank you. Yeah, well, I it's loved interesting, it. Colette, because I don't know if you know my friend Binnie Dansby. She's in her 80s. She was friends with Louise. And um, I was with her when it became clear I was going to write that book. I just had my son. So it was a big kind of commitment to be like, yeah, because yeah, Hay House wanted it in a very short time and, you know, all of that. Yeah, I know. So I had to make a decision <laughs> on it rather than just, you know, feel into it for a while. And Binny was there and she's like, you definitely need to write that book. And by the way, Ken Carey wrote yeah. Starseed Transmissions Trans- at my house. <gasps> so I'm going to die. Back then. <laughs> it's not amazing. And really? I have never seen the book. And then I got the book oh. and I actually haven't, I intentionally didn't read the book because yeah. I didn't want it to influence to me. To influence you. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I had the book here as in so like. So great. So it was, the energy was there. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea. That makes me excited. (laughs) It's really great. That was also, um, I mean, he wrote Return of the Bird Tribes and Vision, et cetera. And, you know, all of it was about, you know, being here. We have a mission here. But yes, you're not crazy if you... If you are reading this now, you feel these things, but, and I, it's similar to you, like, don't get lost up there. I think the interesting thing where my thinking evolved, and I'm glad I didn't write about it right at the beginning, is that, and in writing Letters to a Starseed, what came very clear to me was it was less about like, okay, let's say that you're like, my soul has experienced Pallades or whatever. I started seeing it more like, 
you know, if we go with the concept of even just life experience. So me, I was born in Australia. I lived in London for 15 years and now I live in Glastonbury. Now I still have an Australian accent and the land of Australia definitely is in my bones, but then London influenced me. And then now, you know, hippie Glastonbury is definitely, you know, (laughs) having its way with me. And so from a soul perspective, yeah, the past lives influence, but the the different incarnations elsewhere influence as well. Yeah. And then you look at the, even just like a scientific thing of like, our bodies are literally exploded stars. Like what? Like who are we and how did we get here? And the water, which is literally like the thing where there is water, there is life. There is no life when there's not water. Mm-hmm. Many believe that the water is from elsewhere. Uh, it just blows my mind. <laughs> I'm, I want to segue into talking about Glastonbury because I've had the wildest experiences there. Where I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm Serbian, Polish, and Mongolian. I don't have any British bones in my body. And I step on the soil there and I remember being there. When I was a little kid, I used to paint blue moons on my forehead, my blue crescent moons, right? Weird. But And then when I stepped there, the peripheral vision I had was I could see the buildings finished. I knew, and the smells, it was just so uncanny. So what drew you there? Because London and Glastonbury are two very different places. Mm. What what drew you to move to Glastonbury? Well, there was no conscious decision involved in moving to Glastonbury. (laughs) We had not planned to. It had been a place that I first visited when I was a teenager, like 19. And then I didn't return even when I was living in London until, gosh, my thirties, early thirties. And I would come here on my own to, to vision. And I felt so at home and comfortable in my body. And, you know, sometimes I don't, normally. And I didn't I know what you mean. It's, yeah, it's like you come felt, home there. Oh, comfortable. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, um, and then I began doing pilgrimages. So I'd been kept on being called back to the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as moving here, like we did not plan it at all. And yet my husband and I ended up here and then we had my son here. And, and it's interesting because a lot of people say, oh gosh, how do you find the energy? It's so intense and all of that. But I don't find it that way. Like it definitely does initiate, the land initiates you here and it definitely initiates healing in you. But I feel more in my body. I feel more grounded here. I feel more at home here. And so I don't know. I don't know. I know that with with the house that we live in um, now, um, we've actually returned it back to being, it was actually called the old Rose Cottage, but we had no <gasps> idea. There were, there were the, the three owners ago, um, her thing was roses and David Austin roses. And there's a whole story about it, but essentially I had no idea. I just had a vision of laying on soft grass with a rose garden and I had no idea where it was at all. And in the end we found the place and put on an offer immediately, but there was no garden at all. Like it was all tarmac. It was an old, old, old house, an ancient 
um, yew tree, but that was it. And then we started, I knew I wanted David Austin roses. They were my favorite English breeder. And so I found a local guy who used to work at Regent's Park in London and did the roses there, even though I didn't know he did. So it was very serendipitous. Wow. And, and then the neighbors would pass and they were like, you're bringing back the Rose Cottage. And so we've, it, it lit. Yeah. And then we found out that the old lady who lived there, she used to take the bus to London every year to the Chelsea Flower Festival to get the latest David Austin rose from the display and plant it. Wow. And so that's beautiful. There's something about the land here. The land have it has its way with you, but you don't know what's happening. <laughs> I I feel it, you know, when we got our place, first of all, we we were tractor beamed into Sedona. Like we, our really? friends thought we were crazy. Oh my god, we I immediately what are the chances for me to get a US visa? Like was unheard of what I did for a living. I got that. We, we literally the doors just swung open. And we just one day up and packed up and just got in a trailer, sold our stuff and drove to Sedona. Wow. <laughs> it was just Isn't it bizarre. Yeah. See, it this was is the crazy. thing. I think there's we, something about like, yeah, the land calls you. These sacred sites. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly understand what's actually happening. And how long were you there for? Only four. Mark, how long were we in Sedona? Four and a half years, five years? Four years. Yeah. Four years. And I mm-hmm. thought we would never leave. And then one day I woke up and went, we have to leave. It's yeah, time. The contract's <laughs> done. Contract's done. And I I created the Hidden Realms and uh, right. Messages from Spirit book. They needed to be birthed there. Right. And I needed to see a lot of things. It was very interesting. Um, I want to go back to your Rose Garden, which I think is just spectacular. Your latest body of work, I believe, is the Rose Oracle. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we just, I know we talked about the bloom. We, we really spoke already about some of the concepts, but um, was there anything else that you wanted to add? Cause it is such a beautiful Oracle and how could people Aww. use it? And well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the rose um, had been a big part of my journey, like right from the beginning in like a heart healing journey, but then also my creative journey. I wrote my whole first book and the second book actually in the Queen Mary's Rose Garden in Regent's Park um, wow. in London. So yeah, I, I, the rose was kind of like one of the, these like nature guides that have been there the whole time, but like, I didn't think of it in that way. <laughs> it was just, I just was obsessed with flowers. And right. <laughs> I, I remember talking to Holly Holden, who is a mutual friend of ours. And um, I, I had a, a talk at um, Alternatives in London and I just said, I just can't, talk about what I said I was going to talk about. All I can talk about these days is like flowers and how beautiful they are. And so she's like, go for it. And so I started to embrace that. And then I had a different Oracle I was meant to be doing. And I told Hay House that it just, I woke up this morning and I think it needs to be on, I had said the sisterhood of the rose. And I was expecting them to go like, you love the rose, but no one else is going to love the rose. But Michelle from Hay House was like, absolutely. That's absolutely what it should be. And so I created that pretty much as soon as I moved into that house. And Craig, my husband, like you, he works in my business. And we then began like a two-year deep research dive on um, the mystical properties of the rose. And, I mean, there's so much symbolism through many, many different cultures and all corners of the world. But the thread that seems to be woven throughout all of them is the rose as the ancient mother. The rose is a symbol of the feminine, particularly in mm-hmm. times when 
the feminine was driven underground. You know, like even in the Middle Ages, there was a time where you weren't even able to, you weren't allowed to take roses into graveyards because it was a symbol of the feminine, of the goddess. Wow. I did not know that. That is crazy. Well, we need it now, right? This is a rise right. of the feminine. I know you have, you used to have a, a program, Rise, Sister, Rise. It was one of your books, and now you've changed the name to the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe your membership site, but yeah, that need right now. And what I love about how you present your work is that there is a gentle, organic quality to it. It is very organic, that it's not like the feminine is coming with spears. It's more like the feminine is arising and and needs to bloom as a partner. It's not we're overtaking it. It's mm-hmm. no, we need the balance now. So it's I think a lot of what you do is so important right now. You have a beautiful quote on your website. You say, birth is one of two initiations we all share. Mm. Death, the other. Both fascinate me more than anything else. Now, I know you've been through the pregnancy portal before, but now we are doing it again. Have you learned anything new that you feel is fascinating and want to share with our listeners about pregnancy number two? Whoa. One thing that has been really interesting is the difference of the two as in being pregnant and I've been interested in is that the soul and I definitely feel like each child it's like this creative dance that you're doing together so Sonny is my first he came in he's he's like hardcore starseed like I am here (laughs) and he blasted through me he he arrived in his waters actually still in his right. um, sack and just very fierce strong energy and when I was pregnant with him I was very fierce and strong like if someone came up to me and said are you pregnant this is so out of character I'd be like that is my business <laughs> like this whole other thing came in whereas this time there is like a there's a there's a softness to it and and um so, but I, I feel like Sunny cleared a lot within me and, mm-hmm. and like a huge amount. And there is like a certainty and a softness to, to this pregnancy and, and an op- a gentleness. Um, I think you're going to write a book about this. I think I might. Yeah. I, it's interesting. <laughs> I, um, I see it. Uh, I, I actually see it. I'm like, Ooh, does oh, she know? it's so interesting. Cause I like, I didn't never, I was really afraid of being a mum to be honest and birth. I had a lot, a lot of fear around just the physical, um, <laughs> initiation and, and yeah, just being a mum And I was really afraid of how it would affect my calling. Um, ever since I was young, I was like, I know what I'm here for. I might not have known specifically what to do what, with mm-hmm, it, but, I, mm-hmm. but that was always my priority. And I was afraid of motherhood, like stopping me from doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But when I reflect back, it's, it's brought me more here, like in a, in a mm-hmm. good and bad way. Like I definitely care <laughs> a lot more about the world, which means I hurt more about the we world. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but, and we're all, I think at this time, I think it's an interesting time that I've become a mum as well. Cause it was just, it was literally two months before COVID and the eruption that's happened in the world, like so much happened in that year. And so I'm like, what is motherhood? What is COVID? Yeah. What is this world that we're living in? Because oh. you went, you went through all that 
you know, I talk a lot about the sustained uncertainty mm-hmm. that everyone had to go through as an initiation. And actually, you know what I want to do is I want to pull a card from the shaman's dream. Which, oh, lovely. But we're all coming back with gifts. And that's what we have to remember, that there really are gifts to come through some from the pain and from the uncertainty, mm. etc. So let's pull a card to see if the Wooniverse has any subject that we should cover before we move Great. to the tea time after party. Ooh, so I got whale song, which is all about resonating. So I'll just riff on it and then you can too. So, well, I resonate with you, but the idea of resonating is all about what are we in harmony with? Um, and also to choose when well, we know when our bodies are telling us that, no, this is, this doesn't feel right. It's different than when I feel pain. It means I don't feel safe. But when we're coming from our intuitive sense, we aren't coming from the instinct to survival. So we're not looking for what could go wrong. We're looking for harmony. We're looking for coherence. Mm. Our intuition leads us there. So I think that part of your work, obviously mine as well, you know, getting people to listen to their soul, to listen to their intuitive voice enables us to better resonate with one another in this unified world. What do you think about Mm. that? Oh, I love that. I mean, I, I love the whales so much. I When I was pregnant with Sunny, I went, I was actually swimming with them and there was a mama whale who like showed me her little <gasps> baby. It was no! it was like a little mama blessing, yeah. Um, was this in the Canary Islands? Where yeah, was this? Yeah, off Tenerife, yeah. Right. And to me, oh. the whales, like they're the deep sea divers. They're, they, they are the mystery themselves and like when a whale looks in your eyes it's like it sees you it's like you can't you are forever changed like forever ever 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 changed and you're swimming with them and all of a sudden they just like disappear into the depths and you're like where have they gone it was like 80 percent of I think it's even more than 80 percent of the ocean floor that we haven't even discovered yet so for me the whales are all about like going into the mystery and surrendering into the mystery. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And that is where we have so much of our own selves inaccessible to us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true when we step into the mystery there is a resonance, uh, you know, it's not an action, it's a, it's a beingness. There is a resonance with so much more vastness of what we are capable of and who we could be or who we could become. We're going to take a little break now, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears and enter another dimension of the Wooniverse, the Tea Time After Party. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back with Rebecca Campbell. Ugh, what a great conversation. We are going to switch gears now and travel into another dimension of the Wooniverse. And it's called the Tea Time After Party, a place where we kick up the fun. And joining us now, woohoo, is my executive producer, Connie Deletti. Are you ready, Rebecca and Connie, for this fun time? Ooh, yes. <laughs> Rebecca, you unsure. Unsure. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Rebecca. Yes. Do you have a talent that other people might find unusual or something that none of us would know about you? Yes. Um, one. <laughs> I love, I love the that. Said that right away. Um, <laughs> the, the one that I think has been with me the most is um, I'm very renowned for being a very fast walker. I even. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. And love I can that. also stop very fast too. So. Oh. Yeah. 
<laughs> wow, I would I like walking it. with you. I like fast walkers. My husband's always saying, slow down, slow down. Oh my it's, gosh. It's, that's the same. That's well, it's interesting because in this pregnancy, I'm pregnant now, I've had this like real bad pelvic pain. And so I'm Ooh. like, oh, I can't walk fast. And so I'm walking, I think, like a snail. And I saw our friend Kyle Gray the other day and he's just, yeah. and I'm like, I'm so sorry I'm walking slow. He's like, no, this is like the perfect pace. <laughs> I'm so relieved. <laughs> I love this. Okay, so I'm going to, I never ever say, nobody's ever asked me what my talent is, but I can speak burpish. Oh. <laughs> I can say entire you sentences can in, a, in a burp. I can do you speak. need to prepare with some kind of like soda or you can do that, it now? Yes. <laughs> Perrier. No, I'm not going to do it right now. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> but I can literally speak a whole sentence in burp. <laughs> I believe that about you. I wow. believe that about you. When I see you at the next conference, I am going to drink oh, a lot oh. of Perrier. <laughs> Amazing. Do you now only do performances for Mark? Uh, yes, Mark Mark can hear me. Mark, I don't do wow. it often, but I've been dying to say it to somebody on some That's interview. Real. We see you, Colette. Yeah, we see you. We appreciate that. Okay, your turn, Connie. Rebecca, you are so, you're known for like your beautiful, your flowing, beautiful fashions. But prior to these fashions, have you ever rocked like a zany outfit or went through a phase with your clothing, your fashion? <laughs> mm. Well, I would say that when I was in high school, I was really into, <laughs> I would go to school dances and me and my friends would dress up and like just dance like idiots. Like it was not very cool. Like literally like as Barbie and the Rockers or 80s okay. or whatever. That was really weird. Everyone else was like, you know, trying to meet their future husbands, but we were just trying to embarrass ourselves. <laughs> and then it, for some reason, the whole thing was called Becky's Dance Group. And then, okay. and we do these oh, shows hilarious. for the year. It was so weird. And my first email was dancegroup at hotmail.com. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Oh, that is funny. That. Okay. If you could be wildly successful in another profession, what would you choose? Ooh. I think I would, I would love to either be some kind of fashion designer artist mm-hmm. or like an actress performer type thing yeah interesting interesting well you never know you may i i I see (laughs) i see a line in your future i see a line in your future okay i should keep stop saying that um (laughs) your turn (laughs) okay let's see um you're banned from the library why oh (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm trying to find all the secret books Ooh, that's the a ones good one. like from the reference in the library well that, underneath yeah. the, the library. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love Ooh, that. Yes. I'm, making, I'm probably going, this is all wrong. <laughs> this is patriarchal <laughs> history. Your pen in there, right? <laughs> Rewriting a few pages. Let's rewrite some of those books. That's right. <laughs> okay, this is not a fun question, but I have seen various videos of you on stage, singing, playing an instrument. How many instruments do you play? And what are oh. they? Mm-hmm. Well, I've played the piano 
I mean, the recorder, like everyone did at school, yeah. um, <laughs> then the piano, and then the harmonium. I think I that's it. The harmonium. Mm-hmm. I love God, that's. I it's love beautiful. when you play the harmonium. <laughs> I love that. I love the harmonium. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I got stuck playing the tuba in this school band. <laughs> and you played the tuba. I had played that tuba on top of the piano. So the then there's the connection of burping, right the alphabet, <laughs> the burping in the tube. You have like right? incredible yeah. like lung that. capacity. And when you say yeah. on top of the piano, like sitting on the piano, or as, as well, well as the piano. <laughs> But knowing me, I would sit upon a piano playing a tuba. <laughs> like a tuba. I couldn't believe that they assigned me that. Like, of course. Why? Maybe yeah. we should recreate that in um, right. a You play the harmonium in your Becky costume, and oh I will sit yeah. there with a tuba. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, God. Okay. I hope other people think mm. we're funny because we're just like laughing our faces off here. <laughs> Okay, everybody, this was such a great conversation today. To learn more about Rebecca and all of her offerings, visit her at RebeccaCampbell.me. And for anyone new to Rebecca's world, she even offers a seven-day free guided practice on her website, which is so beautiful. So go check it out. You can always find a transcript of each episode, quotes, and so much more on our show notes page, either via our website at itwpodcast.com or click the link in this episode's description. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Connie. Thank you, Colette. Thank you, everyone. So what did we learn today from this really great conversation with Rebecca Campbell, spiritual teacher and oracle creator? I want to go back to the card that I chose from the Shaman's Dream Oracle, Whale Song, card 61. And when Rebecca spoke about the mystery and about being seen by the eye of the whale, you know, and how they can go so deep and discover, you know, there's there's areas of the ocean we've never seen and may never, you know, never see, but that there's just so much mystery and there's a vastness to us that we have not yet experienced or even explored and that we have to invite more of the mystery into our lives because that is really the richness. That's where all the depth is. So that was a beautiful uh, description that she had provided for us. So uh, thank you again for listening to Inside the Universe. Until next time, I'm Colette Barron-Reed. of Universal Network Studios. Thanks to our recording engineer, Chris Dupuis, executive producer, Connie Deletti, story editor, Julie Fink, and post-production audio by Lonnie Carmichael. Original theme music written and performed by Michael Seifert at Summa Recording. Original music Truth Begins is by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. And all other music you hear in this episode is courtesy of APM Music. If you love what you are hearing and want to keep up to date on episode releases, bonus content, and prize giveaways, please visit us at itwpodcast.com. Also, 
we'd really appreciate a Wootastic review on Apple or Spotify. So please subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode on Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Wood.